Good morning, NBC Arlington. I'm Joe Carter, one of the pastors for our location. I get the honor this today to deliver the last sermon in our series, Why You Need a Biblical Church. And during the last 11 weeks of this series, we've been talking about the 12 traits of a biblical church and why you need to belong to a church that prioritizes these tra traits. And you might have figured out by the process of elimination that today we're going to be talking about biblical ordinances. And you might also have thought that this is the least exciting of the traits. It's easy to get excited about mission or evangelism or worship. And you might even be eager to learn about fellowship or prayer or even biblical giving. But ordinances sound like some boring requirements, something on a to-do list that we have to check off, even though we're not sure why we have to do this. But once you understand them, you'll understand that biblical traits or biblical ordinances are not boring. They may, in fact, be the most, the strangest and most mysterious of the 12 traits. And they are, I believe, the only trait to be practiced on earth, in space, and even on the moon. They're the only trait to be connected with the killing of Egyptians and all but seven people on the earth. And they're the, definitely the only trait that led to a conspiracy theory about Christians being cannibals. And before we're through today, you'll understand all those connections. And my hope is that you'll also leave today seeing how ordinances are weird, beautiful, and absolutely essential for the Christian life. So let me begin, though, by praying for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, open our ears, open our eyes, and open our hearts to your word so that we might gain a better understanding and appreciation for your ordinances. Show us what we need to know about baptism and communion so that in seeing them more clearly, we can love you more deeply. We ask all this in your son's holy name. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 16. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19. And this is the first of several passages we're going to be looking at this morning. Before we get to the text, though, let me lay out how we're going to approach this topic. So we're going to examine the ordinances in three main ways. At first, we're going to define the ordinances to better understand what they are and what they, we mean when we talk about them. And second, in keeping with the sermon series, we're going to talk about um, how the ordinances are connected to the local church. And third, we'll consider the purpose and meaning of the Lord's Supper and Communion with a special emphasis on the, how they affect the past, the present, and the future. So let's start by looking at what we're talking about when we refer to the ordinances. What exactly is a biblical ordinance? Well, there are two ordinances we recognize, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we refer to them as ordinances because they are practices ordained by Jesus for the church. Now, there are a lot of things that Jesus commands for the church, but the ordinances hold a special significance within the life of the church. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, those are the two ordinances we're going to be talking about today. And let's start with baptism. A helpful definition of baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water, and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking them off from the world. Now that sounds rather complicated, but it's going to make, it's going to make more sense when we look at it more closely. So in baptism, the church affirms a believer's union with Christ. And how do we know a person is united with Christ? Well, the first step is they tell us they're a believer. A person tells us they have given their life to Jesus. 
And when a person gives their life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit unites them spiritually with Jesus. And we call this doctrine union with Christ. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And a person says, I'm a believer in Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. And based on this confession, the church, all of us say, yep, they are united with Christ. And how does the church affirm and portray a believer's union with Christ? Well, we dip them down in some water. I mean, what else would we do? That seems perfectly reasonable, right? And we're going to see later why it does kind of make more sense why we do that and why the reason for that symbolically. And it's still a strange thing to do, but it's going to, the reason is going to make more sense when we go along. And the second part of the definition is that baptism is a believer's act of publicly committing themselves to Christ and to his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking them off from the world. If I am a believer, I'm united with Christ. If you're a believer, you are united with Christ. If I am in Christ and you are in Christ and Christ is in you and Christ is in me, then we have a special bond with each other. We are united with each other because we are united with Christ. And baptism is a symbol of this unity. The immersion in the water symbolizes that you are united with the church. You are now part of a new kingdom, a new nation. You no longer belong to the world. You belong to Jesus and you belong to his people, the church. And this is an aspect of baptism that's kind of often overlooked. So we're going to talk about this more in just a moment. And the other ordinance goes by many names. The Eucharist, the Love Feast, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And for this sermon, I'll refer to this ordinance as either Communion or the Lord's Supper. And the definition of the Lord's Supper is a meal instituted by Jesus to commemorate his death, to symbolize the new covenant, to point to the fellowship of redeemed people gathered at his table, and to anticipate the feast to come when Jesus returns for his bride the church. So again, the Lord's Supper is a meal instituted by Jesus to commemorate his death, to symbolize the new covenant, to point to the fellowship of redeemed people gathered at his table, and to anticipate the feast to come when he returns for his bride, the church. So there's a lot going on in this definition. But the key thing I want you to understand and notice is that the Lord's Supper is about the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Communion points us to the past in remembering the death of Jesus. It points us to the present by reminding us of both the new covenant and of the fellowship we have with one another right now. And it points us to the future when we will be resurrected and share a feast with Jesus when he returns. And we're going to explain what all this means for the church. And in doing so, we're going to focus mostly on what we believe here at McLean Bible Church. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining why we think some churches are wrong about infant baptism or transubstantiation. Our difference about those issues are important, but I want to spend our time together ensuring that we understand what we believe here at McLean Bible Church about these ordinances. All right, so now that we know what the ordinances are, let's jump into the text and see how the ordinances are connected to the local church. And the first passage we need to consider is Matthew 16, 17 through 19. And to give a bit of context about this passage, Jesus had just asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asked the disciples themselves, who do you say that I am? And one of the disciples, Simon Peter, tells Jesus that they believe he's the Messiah. 
He is the son of the living God. And we also need to know that Simon is the son of a man named Jonah. So he's sometimes called Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. And he's also called Peter, and Peter uh, means rock. So knowing all that will kind of help you make sense of this passage. Now to the text. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus answered them, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now you might be wondering if I got the wrong passage here, because nothing in here says anything about baptism or communion. And while it doesn't directly mention the ordinances, it does tell us that Jesus first gave the, to the church, first to his disciples, and then to the rest of us, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And these keys are very important and connected to the ordinances. So what keys do is they allow us to open and close doors. And to bind or loose means to permit or prevent entry. So if you have the keys, you can permit or prevent somebody from getting in the door. And these keys of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about are connected to two biblical traits, the ordinances and church discipline. And Jesus has given the members of the local church the delegated authority to say who has entered the kingdom of heaven. And that's where the trait of baptism comes in. He has given us the authority to say, and he has also given us the authority to say because of unrepentant sin, who is out of the kingdom of heaven. And that's where church discipline comes in. But this is not at all how we like to think about church or the kingdom of God. We're a very individualistic culture, and we don't like the idea that anybody can tell us what our relationship is with Jesus or that we can be in the kingdom or that we can even be part of the church. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus delegates this authority to his church. In Matthew 18, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For whether two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We can't truly understand the biblical ordinances if we don't understand how the, key, key, the keys of the kingdom are given to us and used by us, the church. So let's talk about that for just a moment. The key part of this text is that we have a delegated authority when Jesus says that two or three of us are gathered in his name to worship him and to carry out his commands, then he is with us. And notice there are three parts to that. It doesn't just happen every time there are three Christians in a room together. Yes, Jesus is with us then. Jesus is always with us. But in this context, he's saying that he is with us in a way in which we have a special authority to act in his name. And this happens when we are gathered together for specific Jesus-focused purposes. And the first purpose is that we are intentionally gathering in his name, in the name of Jesus. And to do something in the name of somebody means to do something in their authority. And the name whose, whose authority you've probably most invoked is probably that of mom. If you grew up with brothers and sisters, you've probably told your siblings, mom said for you, let me have that. Or mom said, it's my turn now. 
You invoke mom's name because her name carries weight. She's a ruler or a co-ruler in the home. And so she has a special authority. And something similar happens when we evoke the authority of Jesus by gathering in his name, praying in his name, worshiping in his name, and baptizing in his name. We are authorized to do certain things on his behalf. And the second purpose is that we are gathering to worship Jesus and carry out his commands. We don't just get to worship any way we want. We worship according to the way the scripture says. And one of the ways scripture says that we should worship is to practice the ordinances. And when we are gathered in such a way, we are gathered as the church. And when we are gathered as the church, we then have the keys of the kingdom with us. We have certain authority granted to us because we are the church. Now, the normal situation is for us to be gathered as a group, meaning at least two or three of us are gathered together. The scripture also shows times that there are times when we are all alone, and yet we are still authorized to represent the entire body of Christ. For instance, there are times when we are on a mission field in an unreached area when we may be the only Christian for hundreds of miles around. In those situations, we are the church. We are Christ's representative in that area. We are to act in the name of Jesus and to carry out the commands of Jesus just as we would if we was, as if we were gathered together with hundreds of other believers. And we see an example of this in the eighth chapter of Acts. In this passage, we read about how the apostle Philip met an Ethiopian eunuch on the road and shared the gospel with him. And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And there were no other believers around except for Philip. So the apostle baptized him, baptized this man. Still, in doing so, Philip was acting on behalf of the entire church. And we do the same thing. When we baptize somebody, we are doing it for, with, and on the authority of the church. It's, the, it's an authority given to Jesus to the entire body of believers, not just to individuals. We baptize on behalf of the church because baptism is an ordinance for the church that belongs to the church. Indeed, baptism is a ritual of initiation into the church. A rite of initiation is something we do to a person uh, to perform in order to officially recognize that they are now part of our group or that they have achieved a new status. It's a ritual that can only be performed by someone who is already in the group. We can't just baptize ourselves. We can't just immerse ourselves down in water and say, well, I'm now part of the kingdom of God. You can't just walk through that door to the kingdom because you don't have that key. Someone else has to open that door for you. Jesus has authorized other believers to let you in. Now, it doesn't have to be a pastor or a church leader. Any believer can baptize somebody on the condition that they understand that they are doing it on behalf of the church and on the authority of the church and that the person is, becoming, is being baptized as part of the church. So we, the believers of the local church, are the ones who are authorized to baptize new believers and open the door for the kingdom for them. But how do we know who we are authorized to baptize? How do we know when we should use our key to open the door? And the way we know is through a person's testimony. 
If you've ever seen a baptism here at NBC, you'll notice that before anyone goes under the water, they give their testimony. They share what Jesus has done for them and tells them from their, you hear from their own lips that they put their faith in Jesus. Now, everyone we baptize has also been interviewed by church leader. We talk to them to make sure they understand the gospel. They understand what it means for them to become a follower of Jesus. But we pastors just don't give a thumbs up and say, yeah, they're good to go with us now. No, we have the person testify before God's people, before the gathered church. We have the person baptized say to you, I am now a follower of Jesus. And in response, our role as a church is to say, I believe you. I want to take your word for it. I'm going to take your word that you're telling me that you are now a follower of Christ. And by your public proclamation and by your act of being baptized, I'm going to witness and be a witness saying that you are now a part of the kingdom of God. And that's an awe-inspiring responsibility we've been given. We're not just passive observers of a baptism. We're active participants in a baptism. We're standing at the gate of the kingdom of God, acting on behalf and on the authority of Jesus to say, come in. You're now a child of God. You're now part of the family. And we do this because baptism is a ritual of both entry and exit. The baptized believer is exiting the world. They're exiting the kingdom of darkness and they're entering into the kingdom of light. And the church has used its keys and authority to open the doors and let them into the kingdom. And then when the believers are inside, you, our fellow believers say, come join us at the table. You're now part of the family. So join us at our family meal. And that's the ritual of communion. As I said, baptism is the ordinance of initiation. It symbolizes our initiation into the kingdom of God and seals our commitment to Christ and to his church. In contrast, the ordinance of a re, um, communion is an ordinance of a renewal. It renews our commitment to Christ and it renews our commitment to the church. A baptism is like taking wedding vows and communion is like an anniversary celebration in which we renew those vows. And don't overlook that point. Too often we have a, a God and me mentality where we think the church is optional. The church is not optional. These ordinances don't just commit us to Jesus. They commit us to belong to the local church. These ordinances belong to the church. In fact, the ordinances play a primary role in forming the church. Baptism forms the church by taking an individual and publicly recognizing that they have become a part of the body of Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a ritual that symbolizes that a Christian is recommitting to being part of the body of Christ. And look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And Paul's saying because there is one bread, meaning that we all share the same communion, and because we partake of this bread together, we become one body. When we take the Lord's Supper, we say to God, we say to each other, and we say to the, the world, Jesus is my Lord, God is my Father, and these brothers and sisters sharing this meal are my family. 
And this is why we take the meal together and why we don't take it alone. The meal is meant to be taken together because it is a family meal. It is a meal for a family of believers who are gathered as the body of Christ. And this meaning is not the same when we take it, this meal out of context. For instance, sometimes I get engaged couples who are getting married that want to take communion while they're standing at the altar. They rightly see it as a meaningful symbol, but I always tell them that is not the purpose of communion. That's not why we do that. That's why we don't do it at weddings. And they have the best of intentions, but we shouldn't try to change the context or the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And one of the most famous examples of such a context shift occurred the summer I was born. In 1969, the astronaut Buzz Aldrin was scheduled to be one of the first men to walk on the moon. And Aldrin was a devout Presbyterian, and he wanted to take communion on the moon to symbolize the belief that God was revealing himself on the moon just as man was expanding out into the universe. So while he was in the Apollo 11 capsule, on the surface of the moon, Aldrin read from John 15, 5, and he took the communion elements that he had brought with him from his church in Houston. Now, it's fascinating to think that the first liquid ever poured on the moon and the first food eaten on the, on the moon were communion elements. But was this act of eating those elements actually the Lord's Supper? Now, Aldrin tried to take these elements as close as possible to the same time his church was also taking them. So maybe this was a valid application of the ordinance. And I don't want to be overly critical of, of his actions, but it's hard to see it was a family meal when he was the only Christian for 200,000 miles. But as I said earlier, there are times when we are the only Christian in the area. So maybe Buzz Aldrin's situation had justified an emergency exemption. And a more fitting use of communion was in 1994, when three Catholics aboard the Special Endeavor became the first to take communion between space and the earth, or between the moon and the earth. And while I disagree with, with Catholics about what the elements mean, their example was closer to what it meant to share a family meal. So perhaps a good rule of thumb is that unless you find yourself the only believer on the moon, you should not take the ordinances outside of the public gathering. The ordinances belong to the church as a collective body, not just to the individuals. Indeed, that's the primary point we need to understand. So if I made it too complicated, the point of application I want you to take away from this part is that Jesus gave the rites of initiation and renewal, baptism and the Lord's Supper to the church to benefit the individual believer for the formation of the church body. That's how the church, that's how the ordinances are connected to the local church. And before we look at our final point, though, we need to say a word about how the ordinance, why the ordinances are necessary for the individual believer. And if you weren't aware, the ordinances are necessary for the individual Christian. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, you need to get baptized and you need to regularly be taking the Lord's Supper. Every week here at MEC, we recite the, Lord, the Great Commission. And in that, Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded you. And to fulfill this commission, we have to teach everything that Jesus commanded us. In that, in that passage, the first command is to make disciples of all nations. But the second command is to baptize them. We're not, required, we're not only required to make disciples, 
but to show them what it means to baptize. So when we teach them how these commands, one of the things we need to teach them is how to baptize other people. And the unstated assumption here is that if we're teaching other people how to baptize, that we've already ourselves been baptized. How can we go out and fulfill the command to baptize others if we haven't ourselves been baptized? Indeed, just as the New Testament doesn't have any conception of a Christian who doesn't belong to a New Testament church, a local church, there is no conception of a Christian who has not been baptized. To be a Christian is to publicly have entered the kingdom of God by being baptized. So does that mean that baptism is necessary for salvation? No, baptism doesn't save you, and your salvation doesn't depend on you being baptized. Your salvation is based solely on your faith in Christ. If just now, this morning, you put your faith in Christ, then you are saved. If you were to leave this building and get in an accident and you were to die, you would still be with Jesus in heaven today. The fact that you were not baptized yet is not going to exclude you from the kingdom of heaven. If you put your faith in Jesus, you have been saved. However, your salvation is connected to your obedience. You do not have a saving faith if you do not love Jesus. And Jesus says in John 14, 5, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments, including the commandment to be baptized. If you love Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, then you will obey his command to be baptized. And that's also the reason we take the Lord's Supper. In Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, Jesus gives his disciples the bread and the cup and says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, if that was all we knew about communion, if all we knew was Jesus says, do this, then that'd be enough. Jesus said, do it. We love Jesus. Therefore, we're going to do it. But of course, Jesus wants us to understand the ordinances too. He wants us to understand them so that we can gain a greater spiritual blessing from them. But again, if all you knew was that Jesus said to do it, that would be enough. And because baptism and communion are ordinances given to the church, it also means you have to be part of a local church. If, God, if Jesus commands you to be, take these ordinances and he gives these ordinances to the church, that means you are, must be a part of the local church. All right, let's look at the last and third and final point about the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper reflect the past, the present, and the future. Let's again start with baptism. How does baptism reflect the past, the present, and the future? And we might assume that the baptism was always practiced by the people of God. But the physical practice of baptism is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. And the first time we hear about baptism is when John the Baptist comes on the scene in the Gospels. Yet John doesn't explain what he's doing. John doesn't explain why he's out there immersing people in the Jordan River. He doesn't say anything about why he's doing that. It's only later through the apostles Peter and Paul that we are told how baptism is connected to the past. And 1 Peter 3.21 tells us that baptism corresponds to the flood account and the flood waters mentioned in Genesis chapter 7. And in that flood, the water killed all of humanity except for Noah and his, and his family. The water symbolized God's judgment. But as Peter says, Noah was brought safely through the waters. The ark symbolized salvation for Noah just as baptism symbolizes salvation for us. And the Apostle Paul also connects the waters of baptism to salvation. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 2, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Peter connects salvation with Noah, while Paul connects salvation with the Hebrews who crossed through the Red Sea while they were escaping the Egyptians. And in both cases, God's salvation was symbolized by having people pass and go through the water. God's people pass through the water in escaping judgment. And in the same way, when we are baptized, we are symbolically passing through the waters and escaping God's judgment. In fact, we are immersed under the water, symbolically being buried with Christ. We are symbolically put into the grave with death and judgment. And then when we are brought up out of the waters, it symbolically represents being resurrected with Jesus into the new life. Paul says in Romans 6, 3-4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that, just as Jesus, our Christ, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's that newness of life that represents our present situation. Now, we may think of baptism as something that happened in our past. It's an event that occurred sometime long ago, maybe. Yet while you were baptized in your past, your baptism still reflects the present reality. It's a symbol for you right now of having newness of life. We have an event that we can look back on and remember when our new life began. And none of us remember when we were born. But because of baptism, we have something we can look back and remember when we were born again. Baptism also reflects the future in a way that's kind of sometimes difficult to appreciate. So let me see if I can use an illustration to help us see what baptism is like. So have you ever seen a photo mosaic? Um, this is where you see pictures, uh, tiled sections, each which represent another photograph that matches the target photo. And if you look closely, you'll see something like this. In this case, there's a lot of different individuals and photos that were taken at various times and places. But if you zoom out, these individual photos form a different picture. And in this in this example, these photos we saw before are of individual Christians that form a picture that's intended to represent Jesus. And this picture symbolizes how individual Christians, when they are joined together, form the body of Christ. Now think about how this is similar to baptism. Picture in your mind your own baptism. Think about what it would look like if you were to see that event from an outsider's perspective. And now think about all the baptisms that you've witnessed in your life. Think about baptisms you've seen at NBC or baptisms you've participated in at some other church. And think about all the baptisms of all the people in this room, all the believers in this room, and all the Christians you know, even though you didn't see their baptism. That's kind of already stretching our imaginative limits, but try to picture all of the baptisms of every true Christian for the past 2,000 years. Imagine if all those baptisms were happening at the same time. You could see a picture where they're all happening at the same time. All the people coming up out of the water at the same time. You put it together in some photo mosaic. What would it look like? What would it look like of millions and millions of people having put their faith in Jesus, come bursting up out of that water? What would that look like? I think it would look a lot like the resurrection. 
Paul describes this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 where he says, For the Lord himself will, be, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All the dead in Christ rising up out of their graves to be given a new body and a new life. That is what baptism symbolizes will be our future. Now let's look to have the Lord's Supper reflects the past, the present, and the future. Communion reflects the past because it's a meal of remembrance. Luke twenty-two nineteen 19 tells that Jesus shared the meal with his disciples and said, do this in remembrance of me. Why would we, he need to tell us to remember him when we're supposed to be thinking about him every day? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're united with Christ, you should already be thinking about him. We shouldn't have to be told to remember him. But when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, He's not just talking about individual believers remembering. He's talking about remembering him as a community of believers. And we don't give much thought to remembering as a community. So this can kind of be a difficult concept for us to grasp. But communal memory usually happens through reenactment. A community remembers an event in the past by reenacting it in the present. That's why almost every holiday or anniversary celebration includes some sort of reenactment. And just a few days ago, we shared the communal memory of Thanksgiving by reenacting a meal that occurred in New England in 1621. And in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ. And we're going to do that by having nativity scenes and nativity plays where we reenact the birth of Jesus. And the first celebration of the Lord's Supper was itself part of a communal memory and a reenactment, the celebration of Passover. This was also an event that God told the people to remember. In Exodus 12, 14, it gives instructions for the Lord's Passover and says, this is a day for you to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And one of the reasons Jesus commands us to take the Lord's Supper is to help us connect us to our memory community, to the past, and to the future. The Lord's Supper is connected to the, to the present through the, through the elements, the bread, and what scripture calls the fruit of the vine. Communion is a symbolic meal which we take literal food and drink. We need the bread and we need the juice because in the present, we hunger. Now, some people might object to this. They think hunger is an evil state, that we shouldn't be connected to something evil with Holy Communion. But hunger is not evil. Hunger is merely a bodily signal that we need food. And food is a good gift from God. Look at the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. God creates the heavens and the earth. Then he creates plants and animals. And then he creates man and woman. And the last verse of that chapter says that God saw all this and he saw that it was very good. But notice what he says right before that. In verse 30, he says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. God gave mankind the gift of food. He could have made us self-sustaining. He could have made us like, like plants where we just take energy from the sun. Instead, he makes us dependent on food. He makes us dependent on a gift of his creation. For us to live, a part of the created order has to be sacrificed. A part of the created order has to die so that we can continue to live. And this was true even before sin entered the world. The only major change to that plan came after the flood. In Genesis 9, where God says, 
everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I give you the green plants, I now give you everything. So food is a good gift from God. When we are hungry, it is because our bodies are sending us a reminder that we are not self-sufficient. We are relying on God and his good creation to keep us alive. We need to eat his good gift. And the food mentioned most often in the Bible is bread. Now, most of us think his bread is something optional or even some kind of food stuff that we should be avoided. But for most of human history, bread was one of the main staples of life. If you had bread, you live. If you didn't have bread, then you'd probably likely die. Bread was life. And it wasn't like the breadsticks you get at Olive Garden. The bread eaten in the biblical times was very hearty, calorie-dense, life-sustaining food. If you want an example of what it might have been like, you can get a loaf of what's called Ezekiel bread. You can usually find Ezekiel bread in the freezer section of your store. Ezekiel bread is made from the recipe God gave the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 4.9. Now, Ezekiel bread has about 120 calories and 6 grams of protein per slice. So a man who weighs about 150 pounds could eat about a 10 slices of this bread and, and survive. In fact, Ezekiel himself survived on nothing but this bread and water for a year. And that's the connection we need to make to understand the symbolic importance of bread. Bread is food and food is life. We need to eat God's good gift so that we can live. When we hunger for food, we are revealing our dependence on God. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray and God, ask God the Father for our daily bread. We are literally dependent on God for our daily nourishment. But Jesus also says something rather peculiar in John 6, 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You might hear this and think, that's a really weird thing to say. How can Jesus give his, his flesh to eat? Well, you're not alone in thinking this is strange. For as John points out, when the Jews heard this, they started disputing among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And how did Jesus respond? Well, he told the Jews, sorry, I know I'm probably confused you. It's really not as weird as it sounds. And then he explained it in a way that everybody understood and accepted. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus didn't do that at all. <laughs> in fact, he made it even weirder by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And remember at the beginning when I said that the Romans accused Christians of being cannibals? Well, this is why. They literally thought that we were eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And many Jews thought that Jesus meant this literally too. John points out that after this, many people stopped following Jesus. They thought he was just too weird. But if he didn't mean it literally, what did he mean? And the Gospel of John gives us several clues. John 6, 27 says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, will, he will give you. And how do you work for the food that endures? Verse 29 tells us, we work for the food that endures by believing in Jesus. And a few verses later, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And a few verses after that, he says, for this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And seven verses after that, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. As John Bloom explains, for Jesus, eating is believing. Drinking is believing. He promises eternal life to those who believe in him. And believe what? Believe that his death, the breaking of his body, and the spilling of his blood pays in full the penalty for our sin, and that his perfect righteousness is freely given to us in exchange for our unrighteousness. Believing this is how we eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. This is why he instituted the Lord's Supper. He did not want us to forget the very core of what we believe. And when the crowd took offense at his gruesome talk, Jesus exposed their unbelief. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Eating is believing. Drinking is believing. We eat and drink the cup as a visible sign that we believe. The, the meal reminds us that we are hungry and we thirst for Jesus. And Jesus told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That's how communion points us to the past and to the present. Let's consider how it helps us point to the future. During the last meal, Jesus shared with his disciples, he, before he went to the cross, he said, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When we eat the Lord's Supper, it should make us think of the feast to come. Someday Jesus is going to come back for his bride. And we're going to eat and drink with him at our wedding feast. As I said in a sermon last year, we are collectively the bride of Christ, waiting in hopeful anticipation for the reunion to come. Each Sunday when we gather, it's a type of wedding rehearsal. It's a time when we pray and worship and remind each other of the feast and the hope that we, this to come, the hope that we have in Jesus. And each time we eat this communion, we are rehearsing the feast that's going to come. And we eat the bread of the communion in the spiritual presence of Jesus. But someday we're going to eat and drink with him when he is pre present in bodily form. When we, have the, when we have resurrected bodies. You and I are going to join our other brothers and sisters at a banquet. And we're going to eat real food. And we're going to drink real wine. And it will be the best meal we ever had. Because we're going to eat it with the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for baptism and how you use it to join us to your son and to his church. We thank you for using one of the most basic elements of this world, water, to serve as a symbol for the time when we became united to your son and to each other in the church. We thank you for communion and how you use it to remind us to look back, look inwards, and to look forward. We cannot wait till the day we get to eat the Lord's Supper in the physical presence of your Son. Help us to hold fast to our faith till that day comes. Amen.